Welcome to the AWB Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Washington Business, the catalytic leader and unifying voice for economic prosperity throughout Washington State. Today's episode is a conference call. AWB President Chris Johnson talks with Governor Jay Inslee and other top state officials to help inform employers about the potential impact of COVID-19. Good morning, everyone. This is an important call to discuss COVID-19 and its impact on you, your employees, and the communities where we live, work, and play. I'm AWB President Chris Johnson, and this is the first of two webinars regarding COVID-19. The second webinar is set for March 23rd and will be focused on business mitigation and resource support. We have a great lineup of speakers today to update the employer community about the actions that officials are taking and what business leaders need to know. The COVID-19 outbreak is clearly impacting you, your employees, families, and communities throughout the Pacific Northwest. At AWB, we've already adjusted our programmatic lineup, including our March 19th Workforce Summit, to a virtual-only webinar event with all of the same content as our in-person event. And in our role as a convener, we're pleased to assemble Washington's top state officials to talk directly with you this morning. Interest is strong, in fact, it's very strong, with nearly 1,300 registered people on this call this morning. This includes employers large and small, located in urban and rural areas, and from locations all across the state of Washington. This morning's call will first feature updates from our speakers, followed by questions and answers as time allows. Many of you today signed up for the call through your computers. In the lower right-hand corner of your screen, there's a chat box. Simply type your question in here and we'll be able to see it. We have 60 minutes allocated for today's call. Our guests today include Washington Governor Jay Inslee, John Wiesman, Secretary of the Washington State Department of Health, who's leading the state's public health response on this issue. Major General Brett Dougherty, Commander of the Washington National Guard, and Robert Ezell, Director of the Washington Emergency Management Division and State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedahl. Thank you, speakers, for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to turn the call over to Governor Jay Inslee. Governor, please take it away. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks, Chris and AWB, for organizing this. Uh, and I want to thank the business leaders who are doing such a great job as uh, helping our community get through this, which I believe we will get through this. And I know that your business decisions right now have such extreme uh, variability and concerns from supply chain problems to whether the demand curve will go up uh, or unfortunately go down. Our export-oriented uh, economy, we know how important these international markets are too. So the decisions that you are making I know are extremely difficult. And I've been impressed by the business leadership of the state to date in having calm, uh, reasoned discussions with the community about it. I've also been very impressed that a number of our businesses have stepped up to the plate to try to ameliorate the uh, both economic and individual problems associated with isolation and the like by doing what they can to continue uh, uh, salaries and benefits to work through this. I know Amazon and Microsoft and many others have done this as well. So I sense that the business leadership community really approaches this uh, by making rational scientific decisions and also recognizes uh, their role in, our, in, in helping the community. So thank you to everyone and what you're doing, including your individual decisions of not going to work when you're sick and washing your hands and, and elbow bumping and encouraging your grandparents to avoid large crowds right now because that's the real, obviously, as we know, the real endangered group mostly are, the, are, are folks of a certain age and, and compromised health conditions. 
So everybody can be a leader here, and I appreciate uh, sharing leadership responsibilities with you. I wanted to give you a fairly brief discussion of the status in the state, uh, just briefly, and you may know all of this or, or not, but I want to give you the latest. We have 162 presumptive cases. These are people who have, have tested positive in at least one test. We have 22 deaths, and um, those numbers are obviously uh, so painful that we've lost 22 people. Uh, but I just want to comment on one thing. I've, I've heard some comments, uh, even by friends, kind of minimizing uh, the concern about this. And these numbers are kind of small, you know, amongst 7 million people. The problem is, is that this epidemic, the best modeling we can see can double in numbers every five or eight days. And if you do the math, this could be a very large number of people in the weeks to come if we do not act. So clearly this calls for good decision-making based on science, and looking forward rather than just looking in the situation today, and that is what we're doing. Uh, good news is that we are rapidly increasing our testing capacity. Uh, we're lucky because our state uh, developed this capacity early ahead of most states or many states. We've now increased our uh, state lab capacity by a factor of 20 since the early days. The UW is coming on. They're doing, they are or will be doing 1,000 a day, and we have private labs now coming in with very, very significant resources. So that is improving, and we're very pleased about that. We were successful getting the administration to waive a rule that was restricting our ability to get tests uh, to some people. Um, our, our state, federal, local governments, my characterization, I think they're work, working well together. We've received help from the federal stockpile of hundreds of thousands of personal protective devices, and so far they have filled our orders to replenish our state stockpiles. So that's been a, a good functioning relationship. Uh, we're, we announced some things today to protect our elderly by having increased uh, or reduced visitation in our nursing homes and the like. We also announced some measures to uh, increase the number of protections people will have in our unemployment compensation system that will, I think, give people more confidence as, as they make decisions about isolation uh, and the like. Uh, we still have uh, we have a plan for increasing our surge capacity in our medical system, but that is a concern if this continues to grow uh, uh, geometrically, at least doubling. Uh, so that is something we're continuing uh, to work on. Uh, quick rundown. That's the quick rundown of our of our epidemic issues. Um, since the day one of this, uh, I have been very concerned, as you are, about the business and economic ramifications of this. It was obvious we were going to have real supply chain problems. We we're going to have issues of demand by our uh, retail customers. Uh, and, and, and we generally have, anytime there's risk or uncertainty, these are real challenges for businesses. So we, we stood up a business working group, advisory group, that I'm going to invite you all to participate in in some fashion to look at what we could do to help. Uh, some of the things we've done are to sort of uh, do a search for what institutions can help us from large bankers to other financial associations to telecoms, utilities, to see what they could do to ameliorate some of our cash flow uh, uh, problems to start with, and we're in the process of doing that. We are doing uh, some, this is a small thing, but it's, we want to uh, uh, certainly not uh, burden businesses in this emergency situation to, for fines and some late payment penalties and the like. We're going to be making some decisions to waive some of those. 
And I think we see a lot of businesses trying to ameliorate the cash flow problems of their employees and customers, and I just want to thank you for, for doing that uh, to be able to really uh, pitch in. We're also receiving private sector uh, help in improving the research. I know the Gates Foundation has made some big steps in this regard. The difficulty is, and uh, I just want to share with you, and I, I think the best thing that all of us in public official can do is just share information with you. The difficulty is a vaccine is at least a year away for this, and there are some research uh, programs um, looking at a couple ameliorative uh, medicines, but those are months away, probably at the earliest. Uh, one's called Remetasvir, and that has shown some help, but it'll be months before it is actually broadly available if it does show systematic uh, benefits. So uh, uh, I just wanted to let you know that this is top of mind. Uh, your concerns are valid. I want your advice on what you think the state could do in this regard in any respect. In this business community, you can go through our, our website, www.governor.wa, that's wa.gov, that's governor.wa.gov, to get access to that community uh, uh, to give us advice uh, in this regard. So that's a quick summary of what's going on. And uh, Chris, I would love to stand for questions or suggestions. Thank you, Governor. Uh, our first person is Erica Dial from Maple Valley to ask you a question. Go ahead, Erica, ask your question. Hello, Governor Inslee. Um, I have a question regarding small business owners. Um, Maple Valley Black Diamond is mostly small businesses and a lot of our chamber members are already finding um, having you know, events canceled and seeing the effects of this virus. My question is, what will the state do to help those small business owners in the event some of these restrictions might come down that are having to uh, do with the social distancing? Is there anything that might be coming for help for them? Because they're going to they're gonna, uh, struggle. Yes, and I really understand that. I just, uh, I mean, for small business people, I, I saw a story the other day of a fellow who runs a, a little uh, arcade, you know, with bumper cars, and just seeing him stand in the middle of the bumper car with nobody, it was, you know, that's just really painful. And we're going to have a lot of small businesses in that situation, uh, even if we don't take further action on social distancing. And so I understand that, and uh, we're going to look at what we can do uh, with the federal uh, dollars that have been appropriated by the Congress, and um, and make sure that we have federal small business administration disaster loan bridge loans available we think that that's going to be available using some federal dollars our legislature responded quickly and passed a hundred million dollar appropriation for a variety of uses those uses have yet to be specifically identified we're going to try to make priority decisions of the best use of that that could involve some small business assistance but i can't guarantee that to you at all right now because at least the first $100 million probably has to be allocated, or at least a significant part of it, to medical, you know, uh, 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 to our surge capacity in our medical situation to, for life and safety issues. So I can tell you that we will, we will scrub that budget and certainly the federal dollars that in the billions that are available uh, to try to maximize the small business uh, loan program and so what long and short of it is, we will look, can't guarantee it, and I understand the difficulty that the economy is going to 
going to experience here, particularly small business people. We have an email question from Casey Lee. She's asking regarding, is there a, a protocol or procedure uh, set of guidelines that the administration or the state of Washington has put together to help guide small businesses? Well, I'm not sure that I can point to a specific list and protocol, and we should think about that. Uh, this business advisory group is going to help us come up with as much information as, as we can share. As I've said, we're working to try to identify, you know, financial uh, pools of capital to, that would be available to small businesses. We're working with utilities and major employers to try to facilitate what they can do. Uh, but we're in the process of figuring out what's the best thing to advise small business. And I don't have, I can't give you an exact protocol at the moment. We do have, we will have a list of resources for businesses and workers impacted by COVID-19, and uh, that's posted on our homepage. So there is some advice. It's not as exhaustive as we like, and we're going to continue uh, to build to build on that. Uh, so we're going to continue to listen to you about what your needs are, and if, if you can suggest what your needs are, that will help us uh, figure out the, the way to help you. Thank you. Uh, I just, Chris, Chris, can I, can, I, look, can, I, can I say something here just for a moment? Um, here's the deal. I think it's important for leaders to be square with their citizens in this situation and just be really upfront and honest. And the honest situation is we're going to have major, major economic dislocation as a result of this epidemic, no matter what we do. It is just a reality. And, and that's hard to recognize. Uh, but it is a real thing. And the single most important thing I can do for small business is to slow down this epidemic. That is the single biggest thing I can do. And frankly, it's what I'm really focused intensely on. And in doing some of those things, those things might have short-term dislocation for businesses. And that's painful for folks. But if we let this thing continue unabated, um, it, is, it is really... Uh, traumatic to think what could happen. So as we go forward, some of the decision we're making is going to be really, really hard. You know, if we had to shut down, and this is a big if at the moment, but if we had to delay, you know, a rock concert, that's going to have a short-term impact on the business running that rock concert, and that's painful. I'd hate to have a big investment and then have to, you know, pause it. Uh, but that's the way ultimately we're going to protect our economy, in my view. Governor, we have one last question from Tim Shower in Vancouver. Tim, go ahead. I'm curious if you could, Governor, if you could talk a little bit about the idea of school closures. We're hearing throughout the state uh, the idea of closing public schools and certainly understand where that's necessary. Broad-based closures, though, we think will uh, drive intense employee absence, absences to care for children. Could you talk a little bit about the state's perspective? Maybe Mr. Reichdahl or yourself could talk about what you think that might look like. Uh, I'll just share my thinking. <clears throat> this is the hardest decision in my mind <clears throat> because the school closures have such an impact on families, child care issues and the like. Uh, at, you know, the schools provide nutritional assistance to a lot of kids as well. And uh, it's, it's a really difficult decision. Uh, I'm becoming, I think there's more information that we have received in the last 48 hours indicating that 
children are transmitters in schools and therefore uh, reducing their transmission rate, although this is still somewhat uncertain, uh, that could be uh, transmitters, in which case you can reduce transmission by, by uh, closing schools. If we do that, at least my current thinking is it would, if, if that is necessary, it would be uh, geographic to the places, at least in the, in the initial stages, that have been hit. Um, so at the moment, at least I'm not contemplating statewide closures, uh, but there's serious consideration of questions, you know, county by county. And I, we have not made that decision. I've been talking to Chris about this and our scientists as much as humanly possible. And we'll make the right decision at the right time. I'm pleased to tell you that I spoke to the superintendent of North Shore yesterday, uh, and they've had a very positive experience to date in, uh, in tele-education. Now, they're a rich district, and if schools try this, we're going to have to supplement their ability to have technology for students. And they've set up a program to provide actually food drops to people who are on the free and reduced lunch program. They've also set up some child care in some of their buildings with the Y and others helping out to ameliorate some of the child care issues. The reason this is hard is we don't want nurses not being able to go to work in a hospital because they can't deal with child care. So we're thinking through that right now. We're looking at what schools can do. We're encouraged by the North Shore experience in the first day or two. And uh, stay tuned. Chris? Governor, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, joining us this morning. I know it's a, a busy time between the last legislative days here for the 2020 session and then handling uh, uh, the coronavirus. So thank you for joining us this morning. Our next speaker is uh, Secretary John Huisman, uh, who leads our state uh, public health department. I'm turning it over to Secretary Huisman. Appreciate your interest. We know this is uh, top of everyone's mind and really appreciate your leadership, um, both as uh, the business community, but also as people who are also health folks, uh, as I think you will understand as I go forward. We are, you know, 50 days, I think, about into the state's response on this when the first case was identified on uh, Martin Luther King holiday and, and then publicly notified the next day. A lot has obviously uh, been going on. And as the governor said, our priority really is to uh, do everything we can to uh, slow down um, this epidemic uh, that we have here. The current you know, situation, uh, the governor gave you the numbers uh, as of the end of the day on Sunday. We report numbers every day at two o'clock for the previous day. One of the things that you should all expect is that we're gonna see an increase in the number of cases. We fully expect that. And we expect that for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, as the test has, it becomes more available, more and more people are going to be uh, getting tested. And that's actually what we want. We do want people to be able to be identified um, who are infected so that they can isolate themselves uh, at home or if they need uh, uh, more uh, intensive health care uh, in other places. So. Uh, with the increase in testing, we'll see that. And we do know that there are more infections out there than uh, what we're seeing in testing, obviously. Um, you know, the, we're working with modelers around uh, what that might be. And uh, at this point in time, you know, we probably have somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 uh, uh, folks who might actually have 
the infection. And again, modelers give you know wide uh, ranges of of those. What I think is important um, for you all to sort of also keep in mind is that for most people, most people, this is a mild illness. About 80% of the folks will not need um, really any particular health care, and that we're really most concerned for those who are uh, 60 and older and for folks who have chronic underlying health uh, issues, whether those be uh, respiratory issues, cardiovascular um, issues, um, uh, you know, um, uh, kidney uh, issues. So that, those are the folks who are most at risk and who are most at risk for the severe complications. And I think you can see that just how dire that can be if this virus gets into a community of more fragile folks, um, as you uh, see with the issue in an assisted living facility where we have a lot of vulnerable vulnerable people. So, um, folks, what we're seeing now is the tip of the iceberg, and these deaths that we're seeing, most many of them are related to this particular outbreak in this uh, assisted living facility. But the tip of the iceberg, we often start seeing the most severe cases first. We're not really seeing the mild cases because folks aren't uh, going uh, to get, um, you know, tested. And the fact that we're still in the regular flu season also complicates this because the symptoms are so similar uh, to the flu in terms of uh, fever and uh, coughing and uh, difficulty with uh, breathing. Those are the same kinds of things we see with flu. And so one of our strategies has been to try and slow down this, move this um, uh, uh, essentially outbreak further into the year so that we can get out of the flu season so folks aren't as confused about what they might have, but also to try and uh, not continue to burden the healthcare system, which uh, already has um, high occupancy rates just given the time of the year. Uh, as, as business leaders and as, as um, uh, folks who are employing folks, what I really hope you do if you haven't is go to the CDC website at cdc.gov and uh, search for you know, business and employer um, guidance. There's a great guidance on there if you have not looked at it with the kinds of things that you can do as employers to help keep your workforce healthy and safe and uh, to try and minimize the impact on your workers. And those things are really the things we've been talking about, actively encouraging sick employees to stay home. And really, you know, this is a culture thing for us. Many of us feel like we have to come to work. We're driven. Uh, we're trying to do best by our employer. At this point, though, best by employer is if you're ill, stay home. That is the best thing you can do for your employer. Um, and we're hoping that, you know, you all will promote that and support your employees uh, doing that um, and as, as you can with sick leave um, and other um, sort of supports for them. The other pieces is really paying attention to the respiratory etiquette, the hand hygiene uh, pieces, having tissues um, available for folks and really um, paying attention to those high-touch surfaces in your organizations and disinfecting those um, as frequently as you can 
whether those be shared keyboards that people might be using, you know, the doorknobs, the faucets, the handrails, uh, just doing a good job of trying to keep the environment also as clean. This is primarily spread through droplets. Uh, and so um, you generally have to be within six feet of someone for what we call a significant period of time, which we usually estimate to be about 10 minutes uh, to really be um, at increased risk if somebody's got COVID-19. Um, and we do know that, you know, you can pick up droplets uh, as well from surfaces, although primarily most people, um, uh, we believe, become infected through sort of the respiratory droplets getting um, on them. The, um, the guidance, I think, um, gives you great information. There's a lot of information that you can give employees, which I'm, I'm assuming many of you have already done. Um, the other pieces as businesses, and again, I'm assuming most of you have done this, but really thinking about cross-training workers for your critical functions that you've identified in your organization, what is critical to keeping your business going. An example, payroll. You know, if you have just one person who knows how to do payroll, you really now should be thinking about who you can for that function so that if that person uh, is ill and can't come uh, to work or do their work from home, that you have the ability to keep the, the basic uh, infrastructure and important parts of your business um, operating. With that, encouraging telecommuting for those jobs that allow that um, is another great way. We're really trying to increase social distance between people. So we would ask in your organizations that you're thinking about where are people gathering um, and how do you uh, put distance between them. If you're a business that has a lot of meetings, can instead of be in a conference room, can you instead um, have a phone in and do a telephone conference, even if folks are in the same building? So we're really trying to reduce the folks who are um, uh, coming together in groups uh, and uh, potentially, you know, putting others at risk. Um, the other thing I think that is is really important to those of you who have service businesses and others is we're really wanting you to think creatively about how you could put uh, distance in folks. So if you own a restaurant, for example, is there a way that you can uh, rearrange uh, you know, your seating? It'll mean less seating, uh, but in a way that keeps people um, uh, having some distance between them. So you all know your businesses best, and we're encouraging you to think very creatively about how um, you might be able to accommodate um, those things. And I will say that the communication of this is certainly a bit challenging because um, the different parts of the state are at very different places in this epidemic. I think most of you know that most of the cases right now, the vast majority of cases right now, are in King and Snohomish counties. Um, there are a total of eight counties that have uh, some cases. Uh, Kitsap, uh, along Kitsap, Pierce, and Snohomish. And we certainly expect that list to grow. But um, you know, some of these just have a case or two at this point. 
So the response of the community by community based on the given situation uh, that folks have at that time. So that becomes a bit of a challenge, educating the folks and helping uh, folks understand what measures um, they need to take in turn. Uh, the last uh, thing I guess I would say as I wrap this up is this thing that all of us um, address the other sort of pieces of this epidemic. And those pieces of the epidemic are essentially stigma, fear, misinformation. So, um, you know, the, this virus doesn't know one's race or ethnicity. Uh, viruses don't sort of attack you because you're of a particular um, uh, We have to stand up and make sure that folks understand that. We have to share. I don't know. Somebody might put themselves on mute. We're getting some background noise there. Um, uh, sharing facts, uh, calling out discrimination when we're seeing it and standing up for it getting people to trusted websites. And right now, the trusted websites would be your local health department website, the State Department of Health website at doh.wa.gov, the CDC website at cdc.gov, or the World Health Organization. Those would be trusted websites where there is a lot of uh, information for folks. There's um, guidance documents on what to do if one uh, suspects uh, they have uh, coronavirus or might have been exposed. So as businesses, there are some really great resources for you there as well. I believe um, certainly the CDC website has a place for businesses as well. The other thing I think that we can do is stand up beside and with our Asian community uh, leaders and members um, in saying that we are strong together and to frequent uh, businesses that certainly uh, um, really are uh, Asian businesses, which right now have been most impacted. But clearly, I think uh, many of your businesses are being impacted, and we understand that. So this other epidemic of stigma, fear, and misinformation are as important for us also to be addressing. And with that, I will turn it back over to you, Chris. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary. I, we're going to go through each of our speakers and then open it up for questions and answers. I should just share now that we have a lot of questions coming in, so we hope to get through as many of them as possible. Uh, next up is General Doggerty. Let me turn it over to you, General. Okay, thanks. I appreciate everybody being on the call today. I don't have a, a huge amount to report. I'll keep this pretty short. Um, here at the state's military department, we have activated our state's emergency operations center to level one, which is our, our highest level of activation. We've been this way for quite some time now. Uh, all state agencies are in support of our statewide effort, and we're really here in support of our Department of Health, which is serving as a lead agency for our state. We're also linked up with local and community and tribal emergency management uh, departments um, and local health officials as well in a joint effort with health uh, to support their efforts locally. Uh, we've also uh, activated our National Guard uh, Joint Operations Center um, and uh, have been tracking this uh, very closely and will be standing by uh, to respond to any requests for help that come from uh, either health uh, or our local partners uh, via the state's Emergency Operations Center. 
So that, that's really all I have to report at this point. I just want to remind everybody we're in this all together. And if you need help out there, uh, we ask you to please avail yourself of the opportunity to, to, to utilize our system to request help. That's all I have. I'll turn it back to you. Thanks. Thank you, General. Let me turn it over to Director Ezell with the Washington Emergency Management Division. Director? Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. As General Doherty said, we've been activated uh, since January in support of Department of Health. And we absolutely recognize the, the critical nature of our private sector partners uh, in response and recovery from any kind of disaster. And um, we actively look forward to being in partnership with you um, as we work our way through this. Um, we have activated a joint uh, information center here on Camp Murray, and uh, we have charged them with making sure that we are providing information out uh, to our communities and uh, all of our government uh, partners at every level of government to make sure that everybody has the information that they need to uh, make the appropriate decisions for, for their enterprises. Within that uh, Joint Information Center, or JIC as we like to call it, we're setting up a private sector team that's gonna be there available uh, specifically for providing you with, uh, with outreach and materials, but also to serve as a resource for you should you have questions that you can call directly into them and um, they can connect you with, with the right uh, folks to get your questions answered. So um, within the next day or so, we will be um, providing uh, contact information to you for that team so that that way you're much more closely connected with us and uh, the efforts that uh, we are working on. Within the Emergency Operations Center for the state, we have a, a business and infrastructure branch and their task is to support you. And we realize that um, uh, this is going to be very, very intensive on, uh, on our supply chains. We're already seeing that with, with its shortages. And we want them to be a resource to you to help uh, think through some of the critical things that uh, we could be looking at in the future. So, for example, um, as the disease progresses, as Secretary Wiesman mentioned, and we have larger larger numbers of sick people, are there different ways that uh, perhaps the grocery supply chain could meet the needs of people in terms of uh, increased uh, deliveries or um, you know, how we would work with keeping stores open but limiting the contact of, of, of large numbers of people going through grocery stores? And th these are just examples of th some things that we um, look at working with you on and, and partnering with. And then obviously the, the, uh, the critical nature of information sharing. Um, we're working with Department of Homeland Security to um, look at our critical infrastructure and uh, gauge impacts and uh, you know what are some of the things that we can recommend to to the providers out there in terms of you know what are some of the mitigative um, actions that uh, we could be recommending to you to um, uh, again ensure the uh, provision of the essential services that you provide. So again, we're here. Um, we very definitely want to be a resource to you. And um, we see that uh, this is just going to be a growing uh, enterprise as uh, impacts to businesses or possibly the contributions of businesses uh, can be recognized. And so our team will be right-sized as appropriate to, to facilitate that engagement with you. So Chris, I'll turn it back to you and um, we'll stand by for any questions later on. Uh, thank you, Mr. Director. Let me go to the Superintendent of Public Construction, Superintendent Chris Breakdahl. Chris? 
Good morning, everybody, and thank you for being on the call this morning. I know there are probably a lot of questions for our short timeline here. Um, so let me first just say I'm really open, uh, Chris and today's WB team, for any additional follow-up folks want. Um, in schools, obviously, this has been a remarkable challenge, as you heard from the governor. Um, we're operating in protocols that are very much based in health. So we're taking our cues from local uh, public health authorities. They have legal jurisdiction to forcibly close schools. The governor is the other person who can forcibly close schools at a local, regional, or statewide level. Um, my office does not have that authority, so our role here is to coordinate, obviously, the information to our districts to try to get them prepared in the event that there are closures uh, locally um, at this point, uh, but potentially something larger. We're trying to make sure that cash flow works. Uh, the business side of this for us is, um, you know, we're 53% of the state budget and we've got a billion dollars a month in payroll statewide here. And we're trying to balance uh, the most important thing, which is the health and safety of communities with the science. And so far the science has said that students are not significant, um, significantly impacted from a personal health standpoint. Um, to the best of our knowledge, but they certainly are transmitters and carriers and therefore the risk grows as more and more students are exposed to this. Um, but the but the direction so far from local public health is do not close schools um, for obviously the health reasons and then they're thinking about other factors which many of you have brought up and I've received letters from folks about and that is school closures, particularly elementary schools, it drives a lot of parents home and out of the workplace. That's another hit on productivity. That's another hit on the on the business supply chain. And in the case of the healthcare sector right now, it would be quite devastating to have those families worry significantly about how to manage uh, children at home and take care of their, their loved ones at home and try to be a provider in the healthcare system. So I know the complex decisions of local health and state department of health are immense. Um, we are following their lead very, very closely at this point in time. The other point I want to make and help folks understand, though, is the best science here is directing the actions today, and the best science will direct actions in the near future based on the epidemiology and, as you heard from the secretary, trying to limit the spread of this. The reality for us in the schools, though, is there comes a point where the absentee rate of our students creates a significant inequity of our, of our education system and now a growing absentee rate in some of the most impacted communities of their staff and faculty. And when we get to that point, and we are very near that point in a couple of school districts, uh, you can't even deliver services. Our bus drivers are disproportionately over the age of 60. Our substitute pool is very much uh, over the age of 60. Uh, roughly a sixth or a fifth of our teachers are over the age of 60. And so, there comes a reality where the people in our communities are going to uh, act in their own best health interest, understandably, and that is probably the bigger short-term reality for school closures uh, from what we understand than anything that's a big pronouncement, uh, certainly not at the statewide level, but I think you all should be prepared in the central Puget Sound for more closures beyond the two to five days to clean facilities, but potentially longer. And as this rolls out, I think you should expect in time additional significant closure impacts in counties adjacent and ultimately uh, much broader than that, assuming the numbers from the epidemiologists about this thing doubling every six to eight days or so uh, bears out. Um, that's, that's the perspective I wanted to share with you from the school side of this thing. We are trying to keep business operations. We are trying to keep cash flow and payroll so that 
people can feed their families, pay their bills, and consume in our economy. Uh, but there comes a point where this this thing can't really be delivered in this model um, equitably. Uh, finally, you're hearing about North Shore, who really is experimenting quickly on a distance model. Um, there's some good reporting out of the Seattle Times this morning. It really works well for high school kids. They're used to it. They have tablets and one-to-one -one devices and work relatively independent. Um, it's really tough on elementary school kids to either stay focused, um, the modality of it can be challenging, and of course, most of the time, they can't really be effective in the learning without a parent there. And that's one, again, again, that's drawing families out of their workplace and into the home. So we are not in the way of districts trying to do online learning. It's a really powerful opportunity. We are telling them, you really need to deliver this in an equitable way. Uh, we run into enormous litigation risk if um, you know very able-bodied kids get education and students with disabilities who have an individualized learning plan that might call for one-to-one -one supports, if they can't get those, uh, we've delivered a significant violation of federal law. So um, I'll pause. I suspect the questions are going to be really powerful, and I know we've got short time. Thank you. Thank you, Superintendent. <clears throat> a couple things. For those that are sending in questions on their computers, thank you. We're going to get to those in a few minutes. For those that are on the phone, I know we have a challenge getting you unlocked to ask a question. So if you do have a question, please email the following Bonnie, B-O-N-N-I-E, Amazon Michael at awb.org. She will be able to get your questions uh, into the calls here today. Uh, we happen to have uh, an, an additional guest that's with us today, uh, the Commissioner for the Employment Security Department, Susie Levine. She can talk about some emergency rules that were just put in place regarding unemployment insurance. So, Commissioner Levine, are you with us? I am, Chris. Thank you so much for having me participate in this. And thank you to all of the businesses. I know that this is a very difficult time for everybody as we go through this realm of uncertainty. As an employer myself, we definitely are wrestling with a lot of these um, ourselves. What I wanted to do was to answer some of the questions that have had that have come up around what can be done for small businesses. On the governor's webpage for the past couple of weeks, we have listed out some of the resources that we already have. Unemployment insurance is what I'd think of as a last resort for folks to use, whether it's employers or employees, but it is a great support system for our, uh, for our safety net. It, along with workers' compensation, uh, paid family and medical leave, and paid sick leave, provides us a really important net for our state. Um, in particular for businesses, I will remind people of the availability of shared work, which is a tool that allows businesses who need to reduce their employees' hours to provide a supplement to those hours utilizing the partial wage replacement that comes with unemployment insurance, as well as standby, which if businesses need to have reduced their staff and or shut down for a short period of time and there's a commitment to bringing those employees back after that period of time they can use standby so and then during that period of standby as those employees are attached to the business they do not have to do a job search our rules that we just expanded also provide relief of benefit charges when businesses who are profoundly affected by COVID-19 through something such as an infection in their office have to use standby, we are relieving those benefit charges. We also are expanding the eligibility of standby for part-time and less than full-time workers during this period of time um, for those impacted by COVID-19. 
Additionally, there are basically, through this expansion of rules that I encourage people to look on our website, esd.wa.gov, they'll see that the majority of employees are covered for quarantine or isolation with unemployment insurance through these rules expansions. Now, that said, I will really, really emphasize the first best solution is paid sick leave. And again, thank you so much to those employers who are able to provide that. Now, granted, I recognize that not all employers are able to amp that up, and many employees have exhausted their paid sick leave. So again, unemployment insurance is not the first choice, but it is the best last resort for what's being, uh, for what we are facing right now with this situation. Thank you, Commissioner, for joining us. We have a lot of questions, and we have 14 minutes to try to get through them, so we're going to go as fast as we can. So our next question will come to us from Jenny Barnes. Jenny, if you'd unmute yourself, you're able to ask a question. My question was, if we have employees that are exhibiting respiratory challenges and are also maintaining a fever, should we mandate self-imposed quarantine? And if so, what should the length of that quarantine be? Secretary Wiesman, do you want to take a start of that one? Yes, will do. So thank you for that question. Yes, if somebody is exhibiting uh, symptoms of um, fever, sorry, uh, we do want them to um, go home uh, and essentially isolate themselves for uh, potentially up to 14 days. Um, if they've got questions about their underlying health, they're older, if they have underlying chronic uh, uh, illnesses, obviously having them contact their healthcare provider is the way um, to go as well. Um, and uh, if they, you know, uh, in doing that, if they feel the need and the physician or the healthcare provider feels the need to do testing, um, that's great as well. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. The next question comes to us from Kat Sims. Kat, go ahead and ask your question. Hi, um, thank you for being here and for this great seminar today. My association holds a, a high number of events and we're looking for guidance about what constitutes a large group and when we should cancel those events. So yes, those are uh, good questions. This is John Wiesman. Um, I think the issue here is just the more people you get together in crowded spaces, um, the more the risk is. And so there really are no clear, hard, and fast rules about what a large group is. Um, I think you want to think about things about the space that you have. And if you essentially are in a space where people can't be sort of six feet apart from each other, um, you know, that's putting people at increased risk. So part of it depends on the size and the place you're meeting in um, to answer that question. Thank you for that question. Our next question comes to us from Debbie Herod. Debbie, if you can unmute, you're welcome to ask your question. Commissioner Levine, I think this question is probably aimed for you. I think she was going to ask a question regarding uh, about how paid family leave might be used in this circumstance. Can you speak to that for a second? Absolutely. Um, paid family and medical leave remains the same. The only thing that we are doing is we are going to provide leniency. Um, we are going to provide leniency for um, those businesses who are impacted by COVID-19 for penalties related to delinquent 
uh, tax payments. Otherwise, paid family medical leave is available for those people who are seriously ill, requires a medical certification, and of course, people need to be eligible based on their 820 hours that they will have worked in the prior base year. So we are um, able to have that as a part of this net. Like I said, it's paid sick leave, unemployment insurance, paid family and medical leave, and workers' compensation is what we think of as this safety net. And it's critical for those individuals who themselves get seriously ill or need to care for an individual who is seriously ill. And the waiting week still applies for an individual who's, who has who is applying for paid for paid family and medical leave. Does that answer your question, Debbie? Uh, Commissioner Levine, I think I can see the rest of her question here. It says, can you also speak to the uh, processing, uh, claim processing time mm -hmm. uh, with existing backlog and what, what do you anticipate for additional claims and when, when might those get processed? I think is what her question is here. Got it. So the processing time for individuals uh, has dropped. It was 10 weeks a couple of weeks ago when we came out publicly and talked about that to reset expectations. The processing time now for those who apply is down to nine weeks and we are, our mitigation techniques are working and are, in, are getting into place. And so we will continue to see a decline in the processing time that an the maximum processing time that we expect for individuals. Um, that said, we also have released a hardship policy that if individuals are experiencing certain hardships, it's up on the website and describes exactly what people need to do. We will escalate those applications um, in order to address the needs of those individuals who are in those circumstances. That hardship applies across the board, and not just specifically to COVID-19, but to any, any individual who has applied for paid family and medical leave. Thank you very much. Of course. Our next question comes to us from Bill Hummel. Bill, if you could unmute yourself, please feel free to ask your question. Okay, um, my company is planning to send a dozen people to a large trade show in Las Vegas at the end of this month, and I'm wondering if that travel is still prudent. Mm. Great. Secretary uh, Weisman, do you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, um, certainly. So there are a number of things, I think, to think about travel. Um, one is if you're uh, letting your workforce travel, the one of the things is do you have enough workforce behind? Um, like if you have a number of people who are out ill, um, it's about this piece of making sure that your critical functions can function. And so we're asking people, I think, to think about that. We have sort of in our agency and I think in a number of state agencies uh, asked people to cancel all non-essential travel in part so that the workforce uh, can be here. Um, I think for folks who are particularly, let's say, 60 and older, who have those chronic underlying health issues, I think you know that's another pause for people to think about um, their travel. It's this is a very dynamic situation, and you know looking at local conditions about where one is going um, is important to have a sense of if a community is experiencing a fair amount of community spread um, or not. So. Uh, I can't say that there are hard and fast rules, uh, but I think you want to think through kind of those components about travel and also would refer you in terms of international travel to the CDC website for their travel um, health alerts and uh, where they're recommending like, uh, you know, non-essential travel not happen. 
So take a look at those websites as well. Secretary Wilson, I think we have another question similar in this piece. Brian Deller has a question. Brian, if you'd unmute yourself and ask your question. Yeah, so um, thank you for taking the time. Um, we are an, an entertainment company um, and we host concerts and events and for corporate. And we're, we're looking for some guidance on whether we should be scheduling events out a month or, or how far out we should be scheduling these events and, and how to approach this um, to keep our business operational, um, but also fall within. And, and what's the likelihood that these events are actually going to be forced to cancel? Mm -hmm. Well, that's certainly on uh, the minds of uh, all of us and uh, public health officials uh, in communities that have COVID-19 identified are really assessing this in our own communities uh, pretty much daily with our elected officials. I would say um, that, again, this is a very dynamic and fast-moving um, situation. So um, the scheduling out, I think, uh, in places, you know, I would expect that we're going to see the largest concentrations um, of COVID-19 in our larger, you know, urban areas, which is probably where some of these concerts are. And so I think you just need to um, give that um, thought. Um, I would say that um, you have to be prepared to move really quickly. And I don't know if there are alternative ways um, of actually providing some of this entertainment, um, you know, whether, whether that is um, holding some kind of uh, concert uh, uh, in a way that is uh, done uh, through electronic means where people pay uh, to see that. I, this is where I think in some ways, uh, we're really relying on the creativity of our uh, private sector and businesses to think about, is there another way to deliver a service? So um, I know I have not given you an exact answer of what you should do, uh, but rather maybe give you some things to, to think about. Thank you, Brian, for your question. Uh, we've got about four minutes left until uh, our hard stop here. I want to maybe give each of our, our speakers that joined us, if anyone has some closing comments or uh, would like to point uh, the members that are on this call through our resource page to do so. So uh, let me start with Superintendent Reichel. Any closing comments from you, Mr. Superintendent? Uh, not too much from me. Uh, for our world, folks need to stay very close to their local school districts. Uh, the impacted areas, the heavier impacted areas are pushing information out every single day on their local websites. Just a reminder, we're taking our cues from health and, and state health, and um, we'll continue to do that to try to get the best outcome we can from a safety standpoint, but I do want people prepared for larger closures as our employees and our students and families make the decision absent uh, forced closures. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Commissioner Levine, closing comments? Absolutely. Uh, I just want to thank businesses for what they're doing to ensure economic stability and security for their employees. And I also want to recognize that they themselves are worried about their own health and well-being for themselves and their families. Tools like shared work and standby, as well as unemployment insurance overall, stand ready as a last resort for you and for your employees during this time of uncertainty. And we're here with you. Please go to esd.wa.gov for more information, as well as including grids that can help you understand which tool is appropriate between paid sick leave, unemployment insurance, paid family and medical leave, and workers' compensation at this time. Thank you so much. We're continuing to evolve 
the solutions that we have, and we'll work in close coordination with our business partners in order to meet the needs of our communities. Thank you, Commissioner. Secretary Wiesman. Yes, thanks again for uh, holding this and for everybody's interest. I would say just three pieces closing. One is stay abreast of the situational information. This is a very dynamic situation, uh, and so uh, things change literally day by day. So you want to be as abreast of that as you can. Number two, uh, our Department of Health website, doh.wa.gov, does have some great resources for you. The questions about what to do if you have a confirmed or suspected coronavirus disease, we have a two-page, you know, uh, single-sided, two-page, whatever, handout of that. What to do if you were potentially exposed, what to do if you have symptoms. So those are great resources, I think, for employers. And then the third piece is, I really think, we're asking folks to be creative and think about how you can implement social distancing, uh, both in your workplace for your employees, and if you are in the service industry or others, are there ways for you to modify your uh, business in a way that allows you to continue to operate? For example, if I was a movie theater, I might want to think, is there a way for me to only sell a certain number of tickets in my theater uh, that allows folks to be um, a seat or two apart from each other and still be able to operate. Now, I don't know if that financially works uh, for, you know, a movie theater to do that, but those are the pieces or things that we're asking people to literally be thinking about right now. Thank you, Secretary Wilson. We have ran out of time, and unfortunately, we have another 25 questions to go or so. So it's a great reminder, we have another webinar planned on March 23rd. It's a great chance uh, for those that did not have a chance to ask their questions to engage with us. Uh, again, the, the theme for that program will be regarding the business impacts and business mitigation opportunities. I want to thank the governor and all of our guests that joined us for today's call. Again, you can find more details about this event and register for the March 23rd event at awb.org. This concludes our call today. Thank you everyone for joining us and be safe out there. Thank you for listening to the AWB podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date on all of our audio content.